We'll hear argument first this morning in Nijawan versus Holder. Mr. Mosley. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. At issue in this case is an aggravated felony definition, 8 U.S.C. 1101A 43M1, one that serves both as a ground of deportation uh, and as an integral part of a federal criminal statute. Uh, for the Court's convenient reference, because I suspect we will return to this and the other definitions, I would refer the Court to the statutory appendix in the government's brief. Uh, 3A gives M1, 6A gives the conviction requirement, and 7A to 8A gives the uh, underlying criminal statute in which this uh, aggravated felony definition forms an integral part. Now, Congress has required for deportation, Congress has required conviction of this defined offense, a, a definition that says absolutely nothing about the word tether utilized by the Third Circuit below. And the definition begins with a restrictive clause that to require conviction of both the fraud and deceit element uh, and also the uh, loss amount as an integral part of this definition. Since Congress required conviction, uh, the time-honored categorical approach uh, really should be the governing standard, and I submit that there's nothing in the plain language uh, of the statute, the underlying statute enacted by Congress, to oust that time-honored approach, which I submit is perhaps on a par uh, as being presumptively applicable similar, similarly to the, uh, to the stay standards that this Court discussed very recently in the Ken case. Well, one of the, the, the time-honored... No, please. Uh, under the time-honored approach, if the jury verdict necessarily, um, or not necessarily, but did in fact um, refer to the amount involved and was over $10,000, would that be part of the time-honored approach and then the statute would be fulfilled? I, I, uh, under those circumstances, Justice Kennedy, yes, but here the jury was specifically instructed that they did not have to make any finding with respect to loss. In, in that case. connection, at some point in the argument, and you may be a little early because you're talking about the statute, um, I'd like to know either anecdotally from your experience or, or, or because it's, it's written somewhere, how often do juries give special verdicts? It actually applies on the second case we're to hear as well. And has that changed in the light of, 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 of Apprendi? In, in my experience, we just didn't know uh, many of the features of the crime from, from the jury verdict. And I, I just would like to know if that's changed in this day and age. Well, I, but, but you I, may reach that after you talk yeah, about let that. Me, Certainly among the state statutes that we cite, uh, the state statutes where it's clear that a loss amount is an element, the jury's going to be instructed they have to return that, and they do. Uh, the, the special verdict opportunity here is, in effect, I, I would submit a kind of lifeline, if you will, uh, that we're giving to the government in these, in these uh, more general fraud statutes where the government ha has that, certainly has that opportunity or that option to do. But there certainly have been, and I know we cite them in our brief cases. If you, if you do extend that lifeline to the government, aren't you conceding that the amount of the loss is not an element of the offense? And uh, aren't you conceding that it is not necessary for the loss amount to be an element of the offense? <clears throat> Uh, no, Justice Alito, what I am saying is that this statute, and again, M1 was enacted as, as part of a number of uh, criminal statutes, excuse me, as a, a number of provisions 
that were uh, addressed to white-collar offenses, of which this is just one, and it also encompasses uh, the state uh, it also encompasses the, the state statutes where, where this clearly is. Well, well, let me give you a concrete example. Let's say it's a federal mail fraud case. Let's say there are two federal mail fraud cases, and you don't have to prove the amount of loss in order to convict under the mail fraud statute. In the first case, uh, after the jury returns a guilty verdict, they also return, or together with that, they answer a special interrogatory and they say the loss exceeded $10,000. The second case, the defendant pleads guilty and uh, admits during the plea colloquy that the amount is more than $10,000. Would there be a problem in those cases? In those cases, no. In those cases, that would have satisfied the, the traditional categorical approach. But in, then, in, in this case, how many of the defendants were aliens? The jury is given a charge that covers all of the defendants, so all charged with the same crime, how many of them were aliens? Um, I believe two or th- in addition to Mr. DeChallen, uh, Justice Ginsburg, I believe two or three more were. Uh, this, this case, th- uh, this case uh, involved uh, roughly 15 defendants. There are only five who went to trial. Uh, the number who the number who are aliens, in addition to Mr. DeChallen, I believe were two. Then, then the judge would distinguish, it would not be relevant for the for the defendants who were not aliens, because it would have no consequences for them. So why should the judge, even if the question could be asked, why should the judge, if the judge takes the position it's not an element of the crime, therefore I'm not going to charge it, and I'm not going to confuse the jury by saying, as to the defendants who are aliens, you have to find the amount. Well, under under those under those circumstances, uh, Justice Ginsburg, Mr. Nichallen actually himself uh, had asked for a, a charge with, with with respect to loss. I don't think I don't think there's an issue of jury confusion here. And indeed, under under ironically uh, under this court's well, uh, this this would have been a situation in which uh, a request was. Could have been made. I don't think there would have been. There certainly wouldn't have been jury confusion to have requested it here. But I think you have to put this in in the larger picture of a statute uh, uh, of a set of aggravated felony definitions that were enacted. But uh, before you go on to that, we're talking about M sub one. It's coupled with another provision. That's an offense that is described. In Section 7201 of Title 26, that's tax evasion, in which the revenue loss to the government exceeds 10,000. So it's the same in which construction, and there's no requirement to convict someone of tax evasion. The jury does not have to find the deficiency. well, actually, Justice Ginsburg, under this Court's decision in Bulware, a, a deficiency is indeed a necessary element. Of a that. deficiency, but not the amount of the deficiency. Uh, no, a, a deficiency is a necessary element of that offense. That's, that's where, for example, the Belisikoff decision got that point flatly wrong. And this is, I think, the classic. But is the amount, there's a deficiency. The jury has to find, in order to find tax evasion, that there is a deficiency. Does it have to find that the revenue lost to the government exceeds $10,000? Uh, 
No, it doesn't have to find that, but it may. And this is a classic example of the application of the modified categorical approach, where this statute sweeps broadly to include both uh, loss amounts, or in this case revenue loss amounts, that would exceed $10,000 and those that would be less than $10,000. Most of these cases, most of the tax cases, as the government's own materials that we cite indicate, are resolved by guilty pleas with respect to the uh, where those amounts are, are, are designated. And I think it's important here to, to realize that by pairing these two statutes, by pairing these two provisions, M1 and M2, uh, Congress, in effect, I, I submit, sent the signal with that language in M2 that uh, we're talking about the kind, we're talking about the application uh, of, of the modified and what is the, well, what, what is the difference between a defendant's saying during a guilty plea colloquy, the loss was, I admit the loss was more than $10,000, and the defendant's agreeing for sentencing purposes that the loss was more than $10,000? Uh, because, Justice Alito, uh, in the sentencing context, we're, we're truly dealing with a post-verdict situation where the government, in terms of having to prove loss, is uh, up against a far lesser amount, a far more liberal standard of preponderance of the evidence uh, standard, uh, and the defendant under those circumstances. Well, if he's admitting it, what, what does the standard of the evidence matter? He's admitting it uh, here, Justice Souter, under these circumstances. Uh, he's admitting it here only in the context uh, of a resolution of the sentencing issue. If you go back to the — Well, he's not saying, I admit to a degree of preponderance of the evidence that it was over 10,000. Uh, he's saying, period, over 10,000. The, the, the burden of proof, the standard of proof doesn't matter. No, but he's, but he's doing it in the context of — uh, of resolving uh, of resolving a disputed issue with and he definitively resolves it by admission, but he does so certainly in the context here of reserving uh, of reserving his right to contest that is to make the arguments that we're making here. That no, he was that you're, you're, I, I understand the facts of this case. I'm, 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 I was commenting on your answer to, to Justice Alito's question, uh, and it would seem to me that the answer to the question is there is no difference. No, I submit, I submit that there, 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 there really is a, a profound difference under the circumstances of someone uh, being in a situation before, before conviction and then someone being in a, in a post-conviction situation. And then I think we should come back, in, in terms, we should come back to the underlying uh, to the underlying requirement that the person have been, uh, as he, uh, the person under the statute, be uh, convicted of, of the loss. All right. That, that is really gets to the question that I was going to ask, and, and that is, I don't see how the modified categorical approach is something that you could admit would be sufficient, because as I understand your argument, and it is in part a, an, an argument based on a sort of standard grammatical construction, you're saying that aggra in the definition term aggravated felony means an offense that, and you emphasize the, the that, the restrictive uh, nature of that clause, involves fraud or deceit in which the loss exceeds $10,000. If I understand your, your restrictive clause argument, the definition of the offense has got to include the element of uh, exceeding $10,000, or it does not satisfy uh, your the, — the, it, it does not satisfy the standard that you are arguing for based on the restrictive clause. So it seems to me that you've got to go the whole hog or you get nothing. 
uh, and the whole hog is that it's got to be an element of the offense that the that the laws exceed ten thousand. Am, am I wrong? Uh, I I don't think necessarily. Well, under these circumstances, Justice Souter, what I would say is that there may be statutes. There may be statutes in which there are statutes. There are state statutes where you have a range of where you have a range of conduct that may include 10,000, may not include 10,000, and the modified categorical approach would apply under the Okay. How about this one? You are, you're arguing based on this statute, and you make an argument based on the restrictive nature of a, a that modifying clause. And if you're going to make the restrictive clause argument, it seems to me you've got to go the whole hog and say the element of the offense has got to include the loss in excess of 10,000. Cert- certainly, if it does, then, then under, the, under the statutes involved here, uh, we would prevail. There, well, you would, yeah, you would prevail, but uh, you would prevail, it seems to me, uh, at, the, at the expense of this objection, and the government makes it. Uh, there are very, very few fraud and deceit, deceit statutes that define the offense by reference to a loss in excess of 10,000. My recollection from the government's brief is that they could come up with three. Uh, the, 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 the fact is also that this provision was, or the 10,000 figure was, uh, was placed into the statute at a time when Congress was trying to expand the category of deportable, removable offenses. And it would be passing strange in that context to define the offense uh, by, by reference to a $10,000 figure as an element of the offense, which would cut it down, which would cut the compass of the statute down to three offenses. What, what is your response to that? Well, I think the government vastly understates the, the, the statutory provision that we are that we're involved here. Even if you look at the state statutes, a majority of the state statutes, as I think we make clear in our reply brief, there are a, major, a majority of states have statutes generally the theft by deception statutes and others, which, uh, uh, which have lost thresholds that will get you over uh, the — But once you get into the state statutes, you get into the further problem uh, of, of an utter and, I would suppose, unjust patchwork of statutory reference to which this would apply. If you, if you steal the $11,000 in State A, you get booted out of the country. If you steal it across the state line, uh, in State B, uh, you, you stay home. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine but, that Congress would have enacted that kind of a scheme. But, but what Congress has done here is to provide for a uniform uh, a test, in effect. A you, uniform you, test that not. produces both unjust results and, I would suppose, uh, strangely unsatisfying results to a Congress that wanted to expand the concept of deportable offense. But what uh, — but — what if I, if I can just go back for a moment, Justice Souter, to, to the original premise that it, under all circumstances, has to be an element? There are there are certainly statutes, uh, even federal statutes, for example, uh, the the theft from federal uh, federally funded programs, which give specific loss amounts of five thousand or more, which would be which 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 excuse me. But would, the problem is that there's no pattern to it. The point that Justice Souter made: if we take your uh, position that there are a n- number of statutes that mention amount, some as an element, some like this. There seems to be no rhyme or reason to when the 
amount is there and when it isn't, and then you have these unequal, unequal results within the federal system and in the states. So but, when, you, when, you, when you think, would it make any sense for but, Congress to have drawn the line that way if the state happens to make, to have the in which, uh, or if it just has fraud and deceit with no amount? But, uh, Justice Ginsburg, I think what Congress did here was to create a, a uniform test. You look — a uniform test in the sense that you look to see if, 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 if someone has been convicted of both these requirements, fraud or deceit, or the loss. That, that certainly produces far more uniformity than uh, having — But it's treating people who do the identical thing differently. But Congress chose, under these circumstances, Congress chose, under these circumstances, to uh, uh, swept broadly to swept broadly to uh, to state statutes. Uh, in addition, in addition, in addition to uh, in addition to it in, in encompassing the federal statute. But you, what you're saying is, you're, you're not denying that people who commit the identical theft or deceit or fraud will be treated differently depending on whether the statute under which they're convicted has this in which clause. What, what, I, believe that I, what I believe that I am conceding is that it will determine, as with any of, of the criminal cases that lead to deportation, it will determine, it will be determined on the basis of how the prosecution uh, chooses, excuse me, chooses to, to Mr. charge. Mr. Mosley, can I get your help on a question? I really have difficulty with it seems to me, as I read the text, it's easy to read it in one of two ways. It involves fraud or deceit in which the loss to the victim, in fact, exceeded a $10,000. In that case, you'd lose. If you're ready. Or it could be read to say, involves fraud or deceit in which an element of the crime is that the victim or victim exceeded the loss of $10,000. You'd lose under that also because it's not an element of the crime. So you're relying on a modified approach. And under your modified approach, what does the statute say? Uh, the, 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 statute, the statute says that someone has to be convicted of, of both these aspects, both of — But the statute doesn't say anything about conviction. Uh, if, Justice uh, Stevens, if you read it in conjunction with the conviction requirement, in other words, to, to be deportable, uh, to be deportable, that's in, in, in 6A. Someone who has been convicted of an aggravated felony uh, is deportable, uh, and also someone who has been convicted of an aggravated felony is subject to uh, under th under uh, eight U.S. I don't I don't understand how you squeeze your your modified categorical approach, which seems to me a Deus ex machina, which is intended to blunt the government's argument that very few statutes would be covered by this. I don't see how you get that out of the word convicted. Are you convicted of an offense involving more than $10,000 if in a separate interrogatory the jury, though it has no obligation in order to find you guilty to say how much you stole, in an interrogatory the jury says, oh, yes, the amount was more than $10,000. Does that cause you to have been convicted of that? You're convicted of what you're charged with. You're convicted of the elements of the offense, not not of whatever 
whatever the judge chooses to allow uh, the, the jury to be questioned about. Uh, I think under those circumstances, though, particularly if you look at the statutes which make gradations of sentencing on the basis uh, of loss amounts, you clearly would be convicted of that. It is uh, it, because that's a necessary element that's going to — that's a necessary fact that's going to have to be found to put you within a particular sentencing range. So you, so you definitely would be uh, — you would be under those circumstances uh, convicted uh, uh, of that amount. Uh, but I think it's important to, to, to recognize what that, that Congress — that Congress, in enacting the statute and in predicating removal upon conviction, sharp, uh, use language that sharply distinguishes — that is sharply distinguished from the position that the government advocates here, that loss should be something to be determined uh, in separate uh, — in, in separate removal proceedings. Can we go back to my question, which I don't think you fully answered, and that's the tax evasion situation? For any tax person who's charged with tax evasion who goes to trial and is convicted, that person would not be deportable, as I understand it, under your reading, because the jury's not asked to determine the amount of the deficiency. Well, the jury, un- under those circumstances, it will depend upon how the government chooses, Justice Ginsburg, to prosecute the case. And if the government chooses to prosecute the case by seeking uh, a, a determination of the deficiency amount in a jury charge, then, then, yes, in- then yes, indeed, they would. But, the, again, the vast majority of these cases are resolved. I know you told me that, that most of them admit it at the police stage, but for going to trial, these are parallel provisions, and it seems to me they are, are meant to operate the same way. Well, they, they, are, they are meant to operate the same way, but I think that what we have here is a situation where the, the fact that deficiency is a requirement and that deficiency in most cases will be established by a plea uh, highlight, and that this is a statute that sweeps broadly that this is a statute that sweeps, excuse me, sweeps broadly to encompass both uh, a loss in excess of 10,000, uh, a deficiency in excess of 10,000, or a deficiency under 10,000. Do you have any authority for the, the, the idea that a trial judge in a criminal case should ask the jury to answer a special interrogatory regarding a question that has no bearing on the conviction but may have a bearing on the future immigration status of the defendant? which is what you're suggesting should be done in these tax cases. What, what I am suggesting in the tax case is that it would be perfectly appropriate for the government to seek such a special interrogatory if they wish to establish the tax loss, which is an element of the — which is a necessary component of the offense if they wanted to establish it, if they wanted to establish it for, uh, for purposes, for whatever purpose they wanted to establish it. But I can see that if there are multiple defendants in the case, uh, some of the defendants might say that this is unnecessary, it's inflammatory. That's, that's, that, again, that's going to depend uh, on — that's going to depend upon how the government chooses to, to prosecute uh, uh, under these particular your earlier assertion that it was necessary to that, that it would be necessary to get that that amount specified for sentencing purposes is simply not true I mean we didn't we didn't hold that uh, the guidelines are mandatory and uh, you, you that, that you need a, a jury determination we, we've said they're discretionary no I so if you don't have a jury determination you can still 
sentence on the basis of the amount taken, even though that was not found by the jury. I, I, I understand, but my, my point, Justice Scalia, on this one is that, uh, on, on M2, is that it is, uh, it is a statute uh, in, which, uh, in, in which loss uh, can or uh, uh, is required to be shown, some deficiency is required to be shown, and this may, <clears throat> and this may well uh, uh, be done by the modified through the modified categorical approach, particularly in in in, in situate particularly in situations uh, in which, as in most cases, uh, it's resolved by a plea. Now, if, if but I, and also this statute was enacted against the backdrop. Uh, of, of the categorical approach, uh, and uh, the Act was amended, has been amended roughly four times during this period with no indication that Congress certainly intended to jettison this. And I think it's also important here to note the structure of the Act uh, in terms of how uh, Congress sharply distinguished between what would happen with conviction and, and what would happen with sentence. They did enact specific provisions uh, uh, 101A43 uh, uh, subpart F uh, at 2A of the statutory appendix and G at 2A of the statutory appendix, <clears throat> which talk about uh, which 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 talk about uh, sentencing and make that sharp distinction. But I think we should not also lose sight uh, of the overarching fact here that this provision is an integral part of a federal criminal statute, 1326B, so that any ambiguity uh, in the — so that an ambiguity in the construction and application of this statute uh, should, as, as uh, similarly to, to what this Court held in Leocal, uh, should be resolved uh, in, favor of the, in favor of the alien because it's the classic multiple or dual-use statute uh, that has both civil uh, and criminal applications and very severe uh, criminal applications as well. I see I have five minutes. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the time for rebuttal. I hope in rebuttal you'll address the argument about uh, deferring to the uh, agency's finding about what it means. We usually do that. The, the, I, I will in, I will in rebuttal. rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Mr. Gannon. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Petitioner's reading of subparagraph M1 implausibly excludes the mainstays of federal fraud prosecutions and applies at best to a tiny handful of outlying offenses, thefts of major works of art, extreme cases of government contract fraud, and some frauds obtaining confidential phone records. Under well, except, except for his modified hangout, his modified, uh, his, his modified uh, categorical does, uh, does expand, doesn't it? Well, I, I think, Justice Scalia, that uh, he does offer um, this, this uh, variation on a so-called modified categorical approach by saying that we could use extraneous facts in guilty pleas in order to satisfy the categorical approach. But we think that that doesn't work for both practical reasons and for the types of uh, reasons that, the, that several of the questions raised in the first half of the argument. That it's and been, also interrogatories to the jury, he would allow. Well, well that's, he, he does seem to uh, contemplate that interrogatories for the jury might also achieve the same purpose. But as Justice Alito was pointing out, there, there is little reason to believe that a judge is going to permit such extraneous questions to be put to a jury that are, that are not necessary for the criminal proceeding that, that is actually being held at that point. It's unlikely that the government uh, wants to 
make the entire wants to imply that the conviction needs to turn on that. And obviously, um, both with the the special interrogatories and the guilty pleas, there are practical problems because this could only apply prospectively, even though Congress's definition of aggravated felonies is intended to apply to convictions that predated the enactment of IRIRA. It, I just mean that it would not be until um, we knew that this was the rule that we could implement such, uh, such a rule. And it's not clear why any alien who would be contesting his removability in the civil removal proceedings would concede um, in the in a guilty plea or or to a fact that is extraneous to that conviction but that this, would ultimately this defendant did ask didn't he asked the judge well he did not finding. ask the judge for a finding of loss he he asked for an instruction about, uh, for a special interrogatory as to the amount of money my client is responsible for. That's on page 14A of his opening brief. And that's not the relevant question for purposes of the loss threshold in subparagraph M1, which is actually about the, the, vic- the loss to the victims from the offense involving fraud or deceit, not how much any individual defendant might have been responsible for. And well, even but now, then you just, you, the government, says, you know, you'll have a little debate about what the special interrogatory, how it is phrased, and your objective there could be dealt with on during that uh, negotiation. Well, and at that point, uh, he, he, we, we presumably wouldn't want to have to prove up uh, a, a loss at that point that's irrelevant for purposes of the criminal guilt proceeding, um, although it may well become relevant for the sentencing proceeding, as it did become relevant here, and there was a sentencing stipulation. And, and, and why would you be reluctant to do that? Would you just spell that out a little bit? Well, I, I — I think that uh, it could confuse the jury. It, it, even if it were clear that it had nothing to do with a determination of guilt, that would be a particularly odd sort of bifurcation to thrust upon the original criminal proceeding to require the jury to make findings about facts that are truly extraneous to the purposes of the criminal proceeding that is being held there. Uh, and it, for at least for guilt purposes, there's no reason for the jury to have to find that. And as, as the questions before were making clear, the reason this Court has applied the modified categorical approach is to determine what is necessary for the underlying conviction. That's why it's tied to an investigation into what really were the elements of the underlying offense. And interrogatories about facts that were not, in fact, necessary for the conviction or, or extraneous facts that are introduced into guilty pleas do not change the fact that that particular attribute was not necessary for the conviction. And so we think that it makes sense in context of the other definitions in paragraph 43 of the definition of aggravated felonies, where it is indisputable that there are multiple provisions that include both an element that needs to be evaluated as an element of the offense and some other limiting factor that need not be an element of the offense, that it it makes sense to construe the loss threshold in subparagraph M1 as something that need not be an element because the consequences of petitioner's approach would be to read out virtually all federal fraud prosecutions, including such mainstays as mail fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy to defraud the government, bank fraud, the the, the offenses that were at issue here. And he does offer um, a, a patchwork of some state offenses that could be satisfied but even there, uh, there there's, there's not any particular um, consistency to it. He invokes the model penal code, which has a gradation scheme for theft by deception offenses. And although the BIA has, has acknowledged that theft by deception offenses may in certain circumstances constitute fraud offenses, the model penal code does not in the next chapter dealing with forgery and fraudulent 
practices have a consistent gradation scheme. So even in the states that Petitioner cites in his reply brief, Delaware um, doesn't have monetary thresholds for insurance fraud, even though it does for health care fraud. And New Jersey doesn't have monetary thresholds for credit card fraud or payment card fraud. And so a million-dollar fraud would not, be would not be treated consistently depending upon which state it was committed in and even which type of fraud it was in an individual state. If Could state I ask you this? Does this, which is not exactly uh, on point for the issue here, but does the government have a theory about how the, the loss is measured for purposes of this statute? Under the sentencing guidelines, the loss was a very complicated calculation. Lots of, there were lots of rules about relevant conduct and lots of cases and different ways of proving loss. And here we just have the statute. Yes, we think that it is not necessarily the same as the loss, the determination that would be made for sentencing. Um, and so it, the Board has made it very clear that even though a restitution order, for example, um, can be sufficient evidence of loss to the victim, that it needs to be assessed with an eye to exactly what losses were determined in the underlying restitution order and with regard to the burden of proof there. And what if so you have somebody who participates in a, in a scheme involving $100 million, the total loss is $100 million, but this person had no way of reasonably anticipating that this would be the, the total amount of the loss? This was a minor participant, and uh, what would the, how would that come out? Well, I think that uh, this text of the statute here in subparagraph M1 talks about an offense that involves fraud or deceit in which the loss to the victim or victims exceeds $10,000. And so we think that the loss threshold is tied to the offense that involves fraud or deceit, not to the individual defendant's role. If he's convicted of a $100 million fraud, or in this case what may well have been a $683 million fraud, he is — that, that is the offense of which he was convicted, and it is an offense in which the loss to the victims exceeded $10,000. Does so the judge, when he arrives at the restitution amount, have discretion to say, as to this particular defendant, he was just an accountant for the company that was committing the fraud. He didn't put anything into his own pocket except the salary they paid him. So I'm going to exclude him from the restitution order. Yes, Justice Gitberg. In general, the, the judge does have discretion to, uh, to adjust aspects of the restitution order on the basis of the facts of the underlying offense. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I think the Board has been sensitive to the idea that the restitution order does not necessarily determine what the amount of loss is going to be for purposes of. You, you wouldn't allow that exclusion to have any effect on, on deportation, would you? Uh, it would depend upon the facts of the underlying case. If the underlying fraud was one in which the victims lost more than $10,000, and we could prove that by clear and convincing evidence um, in the removal proceeding, then, then, then we think that we would not be bound by the judge's discretionary refusal to impose a restitution requirement. Well, in on the in my effect. very hypothetical. It, depending upon the facts of the case, yes, Justice Ginsburg, in your hypothetical, if we can prove by clear and convincing evidence that the amount of loss associated with a fraud offense was more than $10,000, we think that would satisfy. Even, even though this defendant did not pocket any gain? Yes, uh, yes, Justice Ginsburg. It's not a pecuniary gain threshold. It's a loss to the victim threshold. And, and although the judge may well take that into account for purposes of restitution, it doesn't change the, the metric that Congress chose to determine which types of frauds are serious enough 
to be considered aggravated felonies. In 1994, they, they picked a threshold of $200,000. In 1996, they dropped that to 5 percent of that value, to $10,000. And I think Congress's judgment here is that if the fraud is so severe that it, that that somebody that the victims lost ten thousand dollars, then then that is a, a qualifying offense for purposes of subparagraph M one. Even if the original criminal sentencing judge, on the basis of all sorts of factors associated with the case and under the restitution statutes, decided that the defendant was not necessarily liable to pay restitution in that amount. What about the defendant's argument that at least as far as his admission for sentencing purposes, he did that only because uh, otherwise the government wouldn't ask for a downward departure. Well, I, th- I think that we're, we're not taking the position that the, the stipulation for sentencing purposes, which was pursuant to um, 6B of the guidelines and was for stipulation purposes, we're, we're not arguing that that is, is dispositive in the in the civil removal proceeding, we're arguing that it's persuasive evidence of the amount of loss here. And so he's, he is certainly able to say before the board uh, or before the immigration judge that, that for some reason the amount that he admitted to isn't really the, the actual amount of loss associated with the case. That's not what he's done here. He has, he has consistently tried to establish that, that this, these, this gargantuan loss amount was was not one that was found by the jury, not that it was not, in fact, the loss that actually accrued in association. But your with the position, product. I want to be sure I understand it, is that if the record in this case had been, had say it's a mail fraud case, they proved one mailing and one victim lost $30, and that's all the trial established, but as a matter of fact, you could establish this was part of a scheme, just like the one we've got here, in which millions of dollars were lost. You could prove that independently, and he would still be uh, required to be deported. Um, Not necessarily, Justice Stevens. If the conviction was for the entire scheme, um, then we could bring in the amounts that were relevant to the scheme. But if if the the scheme, the evidence of the scheme consisted of just two mailings, say, they, they, they allege a scheme. And say it's a broad, broad, broad scheme, but they don't describe the amount. They merely prove two mailings that involve $25 apiece. But the scheme itself, because you proved in other cases you have the facts, actually was a, a big scheme like we have here. Could they rely on that percent for immigration purposes in a proceeding like this? It, it's possible. I think it would depend upon uh, I- exactly what we could determine had actually been associated with the original conviction. You could conviction. determine but, exactly what you proved in this case. Well, but I, I — and if, if we had that amount of evidence, uh, in this case we had sentencing stipulations and, and all sorts of determinations at the time of the, the sentencing where the defendant did not — uh, even try to argue that this wasn't actually the amount of loss associated with his offensive conviction, then we, we probably would be able to establish by clear and convincing evidence I don't, that the I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm losing you. Uh, I, I, would, I would have thought that you have to have convicted him of the larger scheme. I, I, I thought, Justice Scalia, that that was the premise of Justice Stevens' oh, I, question. Oh, I didn't. That, that, that yes, it was, but they didn't describe the dimensions of the scheme. As far as the record shows, it only affected it, 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 it was one scheme that was as large as this one, but the evidence to prove the scheme only requires you to prove two or three mailings involving small amounts of money. But then later on, you, you proved before the immigration judge that it really was a big scheme, and that's the one he was convicted of. Well, Isn't that enough? I, I, I think that uh, 
it's unlikely if we didn't have the evidence contemporaneous with the trial. You had the evidence, but you didn't need it. But if, if, if it were like this, we had the evidence contemporaneous with sentencing with $100 million stipulations and things like that. And that makes it obviously much easier for us to prove the extent of the underlying fraud. I know it's easier. I'm wondering if it's necessary. I, th- I think under your theory, it would not be necessary. As long as the evidence is out there, you can use it in a de novo proceeding before the immigration judge. If, if that were, in fact, the, the scope of the conviction, because it, it, it was for, for the entire fraudulent scheme, then, then that, may, that may well be so. Obviously, the, the, the cases that have applied the, the, the tethered approach, uh, to use the word that the petitioner has invoked here, are cases in which the, the courts and the BIA have recognized that sometimes it is uh, — necessary to recognize that there's a distinction between what the defendant actually pleaded guilty to. If the defendant pleads guilty to only an individual count um, that, that's, in, no, that's involved my, in the scheme. He pleads guilty to the MAMA scheme proved in, in the evidence that was before the court or on the plea colloquy or whatever, only described enough to sh- show he was guilty. Well, then, as I understand, you can prove the size of the scheme. I, I, in those circumstances, I, I think that we may well be able to prove that in the second proceeding. Well, I, I, would, I, I thought that was the whole case we have before us, where you haven't proved the, 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 either as an element or, or by a separate jury finding how much money was involved. You, your point well, is you don't have to. Well, you can establish that later. Yes, that's right, Justice Scalia. And as long as it is the scope of the scheme that that, that — that he was convicted well, I, for. That I, I suppose think that your answer is that it's your first argument, that it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the offense. Yes, yes, uh, And Kennedy. if for Blockburger purposes or for double jeopardy purposes, you couldn't retry him for those other, uh, for that additional loss, then that's, I assume your argument is, is that that's included within the offense for which he was convicted. As long as the offense were, in fact, the scheme rather than an individual um, instance of a mailing, that's correct. And so I, I, I think that that, that's, that that is consistent with Justice Stevens' hypothetical and that we would, in those circumstances, be able to attempt to prove by clear and convincing evidence in the civil removal proceedings that the loss associated with the offense, which was the scheme rather than just an individual mailing, um, then, then we would be able to prove that. If so your position is that in ancillary uh, subsequent proceedings, uh, anything you prove that's within the offense convicted, say, as measured by double jeopardy purposes uh, as protection against multiple prosecutions, that you can, you can make that showing? Well, it, uh, with here, it's we're, we're not trying to prove a separate criminal offense. We're trying to prove that the offense. That's my point. That I, yes. I take it that that's your whole argument. Yes, that it, this is this is the offense of conviction. This is just like the domestic relationship prong of the uh, misdemeanor crime of domestic violence that the court decided in its recent decision in the United States against Hayes. That that there is a prior conviction, some aspects of which were elements of the underlying offense, and in order to establish whether the prior conviction meets this statutory definition in the subsequent proceeding, the government will need to bear the appropriate burden of proof for that proceeding. Whether but it's the appropriate burden of proof was beyond a reasonable doubt. That is, in the second proceeding, the recidivist the multiple offender proceeding, yes. the relationship, the domestic relationship had to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, which is not the standard that the BIA uses. 
I, I, I think it was beyond a reasonable doubt in the context of the 922G9 prosecution because that yes. was itself a criminal proceeding. And that's, yes. that's right, Justice Ginsburg. We think that, that if this definition were, were to be applied in the criminal context, then we would need to prove this aspect, the loss threshold. That's of, it, what you're talking about, the, the alien who is convicted uh, of a qualifying crime, uh, an aggravated felony, then tries, then comes back illegally, the difference between two years and 20 years, you admit there you would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, yes, Justice Ginsburg, just to be clear, it's, um, there's already a 10-year statutory maximum that applies under 1326B1 for the prior conviction for a felony. I think that's something that can easily be established through the categorical approach, and we would not need to have a beyond a reasonable doubt determination in the, in the illegal reentry proceeding under 1326 to determine that it's a felony. But in order to determine that it is an aggravated felony, as long as we could not satisfy it through a categorical approach to demonstrate that it was an element of the the in the original proceeding, then, yes, I agree, we would need to meet the relevant burden of proof in the 1326B2 proceeding. Now, as it happens, this, the, the extra 10-year statutory maximum at issue in 1326B2 uh, effectively never gets litigated because the sentencing guidelines range for aggravated felony enhancements in that context for crimes like subparagraph M1 it ranges from 21 months on the low end with no criminal history to 57 months on the high end with a criminal history of six. And so um, this, this effectively, the extra 10 years of statutory range is never employed by, by judges for these types of crimes. In the last three years, according to Sentencing Commission data, there isn't a single uh, defendant in a 1326 proceeding who received a sentence of more than 10 years and had an increase on the basis of an aggravated felony that would include the category um, that we're dealing with here in subparagraph M1. Uh, Mr. Gannon, we're, we're dealing with the definition of a particular term, aggravated felony. And you, you say the only thing that you have to prove under the protections of criminal law to prove that this is an aggravated f felony is that it involved fraud or deceit. Now, the other elements, uh, uh, the, the other provisions here talk about firearms offenses, child pornography offenses, national security uh, offenses. But here it's fraud or deceit. I mean, it's a felony, but there's nothing that strikes, strikes me that it's particularly an aggravated felony. Well, we yet that's all you have to prove uh, with the protections of the criminal law as opposed to the civil well, I think that we have to prove, for purposes of the relevant proceeding in which we're trying to establish that it is an aggravated felony, that it also exceeded the $10,000 threshold. And but not subject to the protections of criminal law that you have to show, no, beyond for, a reasonable doubt, with the, going, with the jury well, protections. We, we would need to prove that if it were relevant to a criminal proceeding, but in the civil removal proceeding, those protections are, aren't there. And yeah, I guess what I'm saying, the only thing that makes this aggravated the $10,000, in contrast to the other things, which are aggravated by virtue of elements that you have to approve, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, is that it's fraud or deceit. And as I said, there's nothing about that that strikes It's bad, but it doesn't strike me as particularly aggravated. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, there are several other statutes here that have extra limiting factors that are necessary to make the crime an aggravated one for purposes of the aggravated felony, but don't have to be proved as an element of the original offense. Congress well, that's just, I think that's kind of begging the question. You assume that those elements, those provisions also don't have to be proved as elements. And what I'm suggesting, I guess, is that if the only thing that makes it aggravated is, is 
something that you don't have to approve beyond a reasonable doubt, it seems that we ought to look, well, is that really aggravated? Well, it, when you're it, talking about firearms offenses or child pornography, yeah, that's, a, that's aggravated. But fraud and deceit is kind of the run-of-the-mind felony. Well, but for many of the offenses, it's things that, as Petitioner acknowledges, would never be proved as elements of the offense. It's the notion that a crime of violence um, is one in which the, the term of imprisonment is at least one year. Um, there are other ones that depend on the actual sentence that was imposed. There is a second or subsequent offense that's referred to in subparagraph J. There is an exception for purely political offenses from the definition of, of crime of, of, of violence. There are affirmative defenses. Well, I guess I don't understand how that's responsive. It's, it's well, it's crime of violence. In other words, it seems to me you're already in the aggravated area, so it makes sense to say that's what you have to prove. But not according to Congress. It's only in the area if it is not a purely political offense and if the term of imprisonment is at least one year. And so, by definition, it already can't be an aggravated felony according to Congress if it doesn't meet other factors that we would not have expected the original jury to determine as an element of the original crime of violence. I, I guess I don't understand the answer, and I'm sorry if it's well, I'm, I'm well, hard sorry. to get through. Uh, it just you're saying is that there are exceptions, but I don't see that that detracts from the point that crime of violence, you think right away, well, that's aggravated. Uh, uh, national security crimes, that's aggravated. Firearms offenses, that's aggravated. Uh, sort of on their own, without respect to these other things that you say you only have to prove by the civil, uh, uh, pursuant to the civil burden requirements. Fraud or deceit, as I guess I've already said, that doesn't strike me as particularly aggravated. Well, I think that — What makes it aggravated is something as to which you have a much lighter burden. Uh, well, it's, it's not a much lighter burden in the sense that we do, for purposes of the civil removal proceeding, need to establish it by clear and convincing evidence. And, and it is in, — in a subsequent criminal proceeding, there will be all the constitutional protections that you're talking about, just like the domestic relationship prong of the — of the crime that the Court considered in Hayes. I, I, I would have thought you would not accept the uh, Chief Justice's premise that a crime of violence is an aggravated felony. Well, I it, — I, it isn't. I tried to explain that it is not as long as there isn't a sentence that is imposed of at least one year, according to Congress's way of determining what is an aggravated felony. And Congress has determined but, but that — the, But the Chief Justice points out that the facts that make the fraud elev uh, uh, aggravated are facts that you do not have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which takes back to your opponent's argument, therefore, you were not convicted by proof beyond a reasonable doubt of the aggravated uh, felony that's the basis for the immigration order. Well, that, that's correct, Justice Stevens, but in, in that regard — So you were not convicted of — the aggravated offense at well, the issue in this case. Well, no. We think that you were convicted of the offense, which is an offense that involves fraud or deceit, and then there's the further limitation that Congress has imposed not as an but element. The, but you hadn't been convicted of the aggravated offense until you established its aggravation by proof of less that does not under reasonable doubt. So well, the word convicted really is pretty important. But it, it can't have that same meaning with regard to all of these other things and all of these other offenses in which Congress has determined they're not an aggravated felony until those other criteria are also satisfied. I mean, so we think that uh, in, in a statute that indisputably involves individual offenses that have both elements of the offense and non-element limiting factors in order to limit the category to those that Congress would have deemed to be aggravated, that it, it, it makes sense to 
not have to find as an element of the offense those extra factors that generally wouldn't be for most of the other provisions. And here we know, if that reading is imposed on this statute, that it reads out all the mainstays of federal fraud prosecutions and brings in a haphazard patchwork of It depends on, on how you read the language, I guess. I guess grammatically it, it could be read either way. You can read it an offense. That involves fraud or deceit in which, uh, in which the loss to the victim exceeds $10,000. Or you could read it, you're convicted of an offense that involves fraud or deceit, comma, in which the loss to the victim exceeds $10,000. I mean, convicted doesn't necessarily apply to the last, uh, to the last phrase. And that's and we basically what we're arguing about. And well, we the think word convicted, well, the question is whether the word convicted applies to the word aggravated. That's the point, as I understand the Chief Justice's questioning, in, which goes to the burden of proof. So you would win even under that approach if you said you had a proof beyond a reasonable doubt of the other factors. But the thing that's, creates the, the, the missing link is that to convert it from ordinary fraud to aggravated fraud, you have to prove facts under one view by a reasonable, beyond a reasonable doubt, but under your view by only clear and convincing evidence. Well, for purposes of the civil removal proceeding, that's true, and that's no different from the limiting factors in several of the other provisions, like the sentence that was imposed, the potential sentence, whether uh, there was a, a, an, ex- an exception for a first offense that involved family members for the alien smuggling and document fraud crimes um, in, in N and P. And uh, we, this also is a reading that we can't impose on subparagraph M2, where we, we know that there is no loss requirement there, uh, that the government have a revenue loss of more than $10,000 for uh, a crime in which the loss to the government is $10,000. The in whiches here are parallel to the for whiches elsewhere in, in, in the statute. And although Petitioner invokes the guilty plea practice in the context of tax evasion offenses for purposes of Section 7201, uh, this, this — this doesn't help his argument for the same reason that he cannot use extraneous elements in guilty pleas generally to establish that something was necessary for a conviction. But if you look at the criminal tax manual that he invokes, it makes clear by referring to relevant conduct and the need for the loss amount there to include um, all of the losses for all of the years in the indictment, even if the defendant has pleaded guilty to only an individual count for a single year of tax evasion, that the the loss amount that is typically included in guilty pleas in 7201 cases is not the loss amount that is relevant here. It is, in fact, uh, directly parallel to the sentencing stipulation that the the petitioner entered into here. If the Court has no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Gannon. Mr. Mosley, you have four minutes remaining. With respect to the issue of deference, the fact that this is part of a federal criminal statute, I believe, doesn't get us, uh, cuts off the inquiry, and we don't get to Chevron deference here. We deal with a dual-use statute, which has both civil uh, and criminal applications, uh, so that uh, under, under these circumstances, certainly as this Court held uh, in Leocal and, and in Lopez-Gonzalez, Chevron deference with respect to Babysikoff would not, uh, for example, would not be triggered. Uh, I think, moreover, it's important to note that uh, Babysikoff got M2 wrong, got, got the, the requirement of a, a deficiency wrong, uh, and also got wrong the fact that there were no uh, statutes involved where fraud, uh, where a loss amount in excess of $10,000 would be an element. Finally, I think the government's reading 
uh, of this statute might make sense if Congress had said uh, that uh, uh, convicted of a crime in a crime in which fraud or deceit is an element, comma, with loss to be found at removal proceedings uh, uh, in excess of ten thousand dollars. But that's not the language that that Congress employed here. And and under these circumstances, even if the statute is perceived to be ambiguous, uh, that ambiguity should uh, uh, be resolved uh, in the petitioner's favor. Uh, uh, to come back to the deference point. Huh? You say, is this relevant to the criminal conviction? He's convicted criminally, regardless of how you read that. You, you oh, acknowledge oh. it doesn't, it isn't an element of the crime, and so to be convicted criminally, you acknowledge you don't have to show the amount. But, but what right? the government has said, if they're going to do a prosecution under 8 U.S.C. 1326b, that they would then seek to prove this amount de novo in the underlying criminal proceeding. So it will form it would form part of a it would form part uh, of, a, well, of a criminal prosecution. In that later yeah. criminal and, proceeding, they would have to prove it, and, undoubtedly. And, but this is not a later criminal proceeding. This is an administrative proceeding. And why shouldn't it be up to the BIA initially to determine how to interpret this language for purposes of the deportation laws? Uh, it shouldn't, Justice Scalia, because we deal with a dual-use statute, as, as this Court said in Leocal, which indeed was also a civil removal proceeding, or Lopez Gonzalez, which was a civil removal proceedings. Uh, Leocal involved 18 U.S.C. Uh, 16B. But there, was, there the, isn't, was it not true that there the interpretation in placed upon the statute by BN, BIA would also be the interpretation necessary to secure the criminal conviction. And that's not the case here. But it was — but in Lopez Gonzalez, there was a — there was a Board of Immigration Appeals decision, matter of Giannis, which was directly opposite to what this Court uh, held and ultimately rejected uh, in that decision. There, there, this clearly is a statute, uh, I submit, that implicates uh, that implicates uh, a federal criminal prosecution later. And indeed, if the government, as I read the government's brief, says that they're going to prove this amount uh, in some subsequent illegal reentry prosecution, that, I submit, raises far more concerns with respect to practicality. I frankly couldn't understand the government's concession on that point. I thought the, the offense on illegal entry was to enter illegally after you've been deported. It's a the, there's a defense if the original deportation was flawed? I don't, no, I don't well, that, that may be a separate issue, uh, Justice Kennedy. There is the sentencing enhancement if it's uh, after, if someone enters or reenters illegally after conviction of an aggravated felony. And what the government apparently has said is that they would prove uh, for a person whose aggravated felony arguably falls within I, I, one, they would prove that loss de novo in, in, in federal court. I see my time is up. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.